Thank you for tuning in to this webinar, Fringe Benefits Reporting and Taxation, What Employers Should Know. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and HR professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speakers are Cindy McSwain and Mike Ludlow. Cindy leads AGH's Outsourcing Services Group. Her team provides payroll, accounting, funds disbursement, controller, and other financial outsourcing services to numerous clients throughout the central U.S. Prior to directing the outsourcing group, Cindy served AGH's assurance clients for 10 years, working with a wide range of middle market, closely held, and family-owned clients. Mike Ludlow oversees the operations of AGH's Payroll Service Bureau. He and his team handle payroll processing, reporting, and tax filings for multi-state and multi-site companies. His 15-plus years of experience include accounting, finance, and payroll. Most recently, Mike performed similar functions for an outsourced payroll and accounting provider. He previously gained knowledge as a financial analyst for a technology and document solutions company where he performed accounting duties, managed databases, and managed an operational team. To attract and retain talented individuals, many employers offer fringe benefits and other perks, but they may not realize those additional perks may be taxable to their employees. AGH's Cindy McSwain and Mike Ludlow will explain how you can determine what fringe benefits your organization currently offers and whether you should be reporting and withholding taxes for them. Thanks, Mike. Um, we've got a room full of mics today here. Um, uh, thanks to the audience for joining us today. Uh, hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving holiday. Um, I am excited to have Mike Ludlow join us uh, this year for this webinar. Mike is fair, Mike Ludlow is fairly new to the AGH payroll team, and he, like uh, was mentioned earlier, he joined us in August, and he's now overseeing the operations of that area. So if you hadn't had a chance to meet him yet, um, reach out sometime and say hello. So once again this year, AGH has a lineup of three different webinars that are going to be dealing with year-end uh, topics. Today's is actually the second in this series, and we're going to cover fringe benefits, uh, things like what they are, where to find them, how to report them. We've already covered 1099 reporting, and that webinar has been archived to our AGH University website for you to access if you didn't happen to catch, uh, catch it live. Um, our final webinar covering the overall preparation and processing of year-end payroll is going to be on December 15th, and you can find that out there on the AGH University website as well to register, register for that if you haven't. Uh, let's go over our learning objectives for today. Uh, that is that we want to uh, just basically identify the various types of fringe benefits that are out there. We want to then talk a little bit about the taxability and the reporting requirements of those various fringe benefits and then understand the substantiation requirements behind them. Um, we laugh because we, we use, you're gonna hear us use that word substantiation frequently throughout this, um, throughout the hour. So at this point, I'm gonna hand it over to Mike Ludlow to just do a basic refresher on compensation in general. Thank you very much, Cindy. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, let's talk about compensation. Uh, for some of you, this may be a good reminder or a review, and for others, uh, you may be surprised to find out that compensation is more than just the wages that we pay an employee. Uh, the general rule on income inclusion is all income from whatever source derived, including but not limited to compensation for services, including fees, commissions, fringe benefits, and similar items. The IRS regs further state that gross income includes income realized in any form, whether in money, property, or services. Income may be realized, therefore, in the form of services, meals, accommodations, stock, or other property, as well as cash. 
So these definitions mean that all employee compensation provided in whatever form is taxable unless another section of the IRS code states otherwise. So in general, the same guidelines apply to withholding income, Social Security, and Medicare taxes. And as trusted minders of the payroll, we sometimes have to put our sleuth hats on at the end of the year to find all the compensation that an employee may have received so that we can tax it appropriately. Uh, compensation includes all income unless it is specifically excluded by law. And this includes money, property, or services where the employee benefits due to the employee-employer relationship. And the income isn't just a payment. The income may be realized in the form of services, meals, stock, cash, or other property. Keep in mind, uh, benefit provided on behalf of an employee is taxable to that employee, even if the benefit is received by someone other than the employee, such as a spouse or a child. So uh, examples here, potentially it's the employee discount on goods or services that you provide to customers. If the discount is too high, a portion of that may be taxable. Uh, could be the $25 gift card that you give an employee for a job well done. Uh, it's the value of a spouse's travel expense when the employee took them to their business conference and the employer footed the bill. Uh, and let's not forget, it can also include non-forfeitable vested interest and deferred compensation plans. So these are all going to be considered fringe benefits. Uh, so what resources are out there and available for you? Um, one of our go-tos is the IRS publication 15B, um, the Employer's Guide to Fringe Benefits. It, it is available on the IRS website. Uh, another great resource is IRS publication 5137, the Fringe Benefit Guide. This one is written uh, a little bit more layman's terms and includes examples of treatment in different scenarios. Um, this one was actually updated in 2020, and I think it went several years without being updated prior to that, so it's good to know that it's a little bit more current. Um, and then lastly is Form 14581-A, Fringe Benefits Compliance Self-Assessment for Public Employers. This one is uh, specifically directed to public employers, but the concepts and the questions are sound for any organization if you wanted to look through that one as well. So let's dive down a little bit in the weeds now and talk about identifying the various types of fringe benefits that are out there. Our first step is to actually identify those fringe benefits that might have been, uh, may have been provided to the employees over the course of the year. You may be recording some of this information uh, throughout the year, but you might also need to gather some additional information from other sources so that it can be, you know, finalized up at the, at the end of the year. So you really should talk to your accounts payable group. Um, people go, why? That seems weird. Um, but you want to determine if any, you know, you want to look at any payments that have been paid out to your employees. These payments might not be fringe benefits, and that could be things like accountable reimbursements. Those don't have to be reported, but these payments actually should be analyzed just to make sure and determine what they are, because you're, you know, the, the payroll people are the, the ones who really know how things, what are fringe benefits and how they need to be, if they need to be recorded. Um, accounts payable don't necessarily know that and may not necessarily bring that to your attention. Additionally, talk to your human resources group about any new benefits that have been added uh, specifically or especially for executives. You'd really be surprised how many deferred compensation plans that 
we don't hear about until years after that they've been put in place. And there's actually, some of those have some reporting uh, requirements up front. Also, uh, take some time to think about company equipment like cars um, and other things like that that your employees might be using. So let's talk a little bit about the minimus fringe benefits. Um, that's gonna include any property or service that's provided by an employer for an employee for which the value is so small in relation to the frequency with which it's provided that accounting for it is really unreasonable or administratively impracticable. In this case, de minimis does not refer to a, a dollar value, but rather it's really more about the frequency. So if you're providing an occasional lunch for your employees, that's not really compensation. But if you have a lunch brought in every Friday or every day out of the goodness of your heart, then really based on the regs, as they're stated, it's probably um, technically includable as income. Remember that cash is always taxable and gift cards count as cash. So uh, because they're just like cash as that employee can you know, purchase whatever they want. Now, if the gift card only allows them to buy a turkey at Thanksgiving, that's probably more non-taxable because you're really giving them a turkey and only at Thanksgiving. So that's that de minimis frequency um, thing that we were talking about. So I always want to take this time to kind of mention, you know, evaluating the risk because people come out of here going, really? I've got, so as an example, uh, we're having a, a departmental Christmas party this afternoon and I've got, you know, some gift cards that we're going to give out as prizes. So, you know, gosh, is that, am I going to tack that on everybody's W-2? You know, really, you, you have to evaluate the risk for not reporting. So, you know, while it may not hit the de minimis rules, um, it might, but you really kind of got to sit back and, and think about, you know, is, what's the risk of us not reporting this as compensation. So Mike Ludlow and I today, you know, we're here to tell you what the regs say and what the, you know, technically correct answers are, uh, but you always kind of have to take that into consideration as well. So when do you have to record uh, this as, these fringe benefits as compensation and actually withhold the taxes? So as long as you're reporting annually, you should be fine. You can certainly record more frequently if you choose. You have the option to add the fringe benefits to an employee's regular wages uh, and withhold on the total, or you can choose to withhold at the supplemental tax rates. Also, you can treat the benefits that are provided in November and December as being paid in the following year. So as an example, um, you can calculate your fringe auto usage from November to October instead of January through December. That makes it a little bit easier to gather the information more timely than waiting through the end of the year. As long as it's that 12 month period and it has to, it has to go through at least October. So I'm gonna pass it back over to Mike Ludlow at this point to start looking at some of the actual common types of fringe benefits, more in the weeds. Thanks, Cindy. Yeah, so not only are we going to talk about some common fringe benefits, but we're also going to look at what would make these benefits excludable from income, <clears throat> so, so non-taxable. Um, working conditions is our first one. So this includes property or services that if the employee had paid for the property or service, the cost would have been allowable as a business expense deduction to the employee. So these must be related to your business it would have been an allowable business expense deduction to the employee if the expense had been paid personally by, by the employee. 
and then lastly, of course, must be substantiated. So cash payments or cash equivalents may be excludable if they represent reimbursements paid under an accountable plan. And think about expense reimbursements. If you require that substantiation, these are probably going to be excluded. Uh, de minimis, Cindy mentioned these uh, fringes. You can exclude personal use of photocopiers, group meals, uh, theater tickets. Again, the, the key is the frequency with which these are provided in order for them to be excludable. So take that into consideration there. Uh, qualified employee discounts. Uh, we're going to make you do some math here, but if you provide services or property to the general public and give your employees discounts on those, uh, these may be excluded based on specific limits. So if we're talking about property, the discount can't exceed the gross profit percentage times the price charged to the public for those to be excluded. And then if we're talking about services, the discount can be no more than 20% of the prices charged to the general public in order for those to be excluded. Qualified transportation. Um, this includes commuter transportation, transit passes, uh, qualified parking, as long as the fair market value doesn't exceed the monthly excludable limits, these are not reported as taxable wages. So cash reimbursements for these items, if they're substantiated, are not gonna be included as wages either. The 2018 tax law suspended that um, exclusion of qualified bicycle commuting reimbursements from your employee's income for any tax year beginning after uh, December 31st, 2017. So 2018 through 2025. You know, we don't see a lot of qualified transportation fringes here in the, at least in, in the Kansas area, uh, because, you know, most of the places are a little bit smaller, but uh, my son just moved out to Denver and he actually gets paid a, a commuting um, or a qualified transportation for him to be able to commute back and forth just because it's in, in downtown metro area. Interesting. So. So let's talk about travel. There are no tax consequences to reimbursements for allowable expenses if the accountable plan rules are met. Again, that substantiation stuff. Um, however, travel, it has to be temporary and substantially longer than the employee's regular workday in order to qualify. And it also requires that the employee be away from their tax home on business. Also, if you're paying uh, per diems to employees instead of requiring submission of expenses, Make sure that the per diem amount is at or below the allowable rate for the area in which uh, to which they're traveling. Um, those rates are published at the Government Services Administration website. That's www.gsa.gov. And um, you know, as a reminder, there, there's different rates for different parts of the country, different communities, cities, states, etc. So any per diems that exceed the published rate should be included as taxable wages. Now keep in mind as well that per diems for an employee that's on an extended basis, that's only allowed for one year because after the one year time frame, the IRS actually concludes that that temporary assignment is now permanent and therefore per diems are no longer applicable on a tax-free basis. There is a misconception that per diems don't require any substantiation, but they actually do. Um, while receipts don't have to be retained or actual expenses recorded, the travel dates and the business purpose of that trip, of each trip, uh, actually do need to be documented. 
of more on uh, some transportation in order for that to be excludable again substantiation is required you can exclude daily transportation between work locations a temporary location outside of the metro area where that employee works or another work location and the employee's residence if that's their primary work location most of us tend to think of this commonly as a, a mileage reimbursement fancy language um, moving expenses, we throw this in here because we still kind of see this pop up every once in a while, but just a reminder, um, back in 2018, as part of the tax reform legislation, an employee can no longer deduct moving expenses and an employer, um, if a, an employer pays or reimburses an employee's moving expenses, that's going to be considered compensation. That used to be on a tax-free basis up to certain limits, but now it's 100% taxable. Um, this change is set to expire at the end or sunset at the end of 2025, um, but we all kind of know we can't predict anything these days when it comes to tax legislation. So we'll just have to kind of keep our eye on that one. Uh, however, the exclusion is still available in the case of a member of the U.S. Armed Forces who's on active duty and who moves because of a permanent change of station. That exclusion applies only to reimbursement of moving expenses that the member could deduct if he or she had paid or incurred them without reimbursement. Um, this is one of those areas that I think it's really still important to ask the question um, of HR and of your accounts payable folk um, about moving expenses, uh, even though these are now taxable. Many companies simply still really aren't aware of this. They're just still operating under those old rules. And be advised that although payments are made directly to a moving company, those were non-taxable, but now those are considered taxable to the employee as well. These are the types of those compensable payments that are just kind of lurking or sleeping out there that might be easy to miss. And that's, again, why it's important to talk to some of those other areas. Okay, meals and lodging. Meals are excludable from wages as long as they are provided on the employer's business premises and provided for the employer's convenience. So think about a staff meeting or providing a meal when you ask employees to work through lunch, uh, something like that. Lodging, lodging may be excludable if it is on the employer's business premises for the employer's benefit and as a condition of employment. Um, so these are different than travel expenses. Uh, if you would allow if you allow an employee to stay rent free at a hotel that does not qualify as excludable unless you require the employee to stay on the premises as a condition of their employment. So think about when an apartment building owner requires the property manager to live on the premises, that sort of thing can be excluded from income. So here's another example uh, that we we got several years ago. So some of you may have heard this one before, but um, a municipality that we deal with, uh, their parks and recs department actually operates a municipal zoo. So because that zoo is accredited uh, by whatever association is out there, that association requires that someone be on site 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So this city provides, actually provides a residence for that on, on the physically on the zoo grounds for an employee. And this employee makes security rounds after hours, takes care of issues that might arise. So in this case, the lodging is actually excludable from compensation since it's on the employer's business premises. It's for the employer's benefit and it's actually a condition of employment. Okay. 
reimbursement for employee vehicle or employer provided vehicles. If you're reimbursing an employee for their use of their vehicle, as long as you're reimbursing at or under the stated rates, it is excludable. If you're paying maintenance, make sure that you require substantiation. Uh, reimbursement for these expenses is not excluded if you're paying the stated IRS rate for mileage. So if an employer provided vehicle is used for both business and personal purposes, substantiated business use is not taxable to that employee. Personal use is taxable to the employee as wages, or the employer can allow the employee to reimburse the personal use. So this is one of those fringe benefits that must be documented. Um, the employee needs to keep records of the personal versus business miles so that we know which part is taxable and which part is not. Uh, we're going to discuss three methods of calculating this benefit. Uh, the three that you see there, lease valuation rule, the cents per mile rule, and the commuting rule. So the most common valuation method is the lease valuation rule. Uh, this method uses the IRS tables in publication 15B, like I mentioned earlier, uh, to determine the annual lease value based on the fair market value of the vehicle, um, starting from the first date that it's available to the employee. So the lease stays in place until the employee has been assigned the car for four full years, at which time it can be revalued. Uh, the annual lease value is then allocated between business and personal use based on the number of miles driven, and you must include a fuel charge if the employer pays for that gas. So next is the cents per mile rule. Uh, this is use. This used to be disallowed on vehicles with a small market, small market value currently 16,500, but the regs have finally caught up with the uh, inflation that we're all dealing with. Um, so you can now use the cents per mile rule for vehicles with a market value below 56,100. This rule can be used if you reasonably expect the car to be used regularly in your trade or business at least 50% of the miles and the car must be driven at least 10,000 miles throughout the year. So it doesn't matter if these are business or personal, um, the stated rate does include gas provided by the employer and you can reduce the per mile rate by up to 5.5 cents if the employer doesn't pay for gas. And lastly is the commuting rule. This is valued at $1.50 for each one-way commute. Keep in mind the commuting method can't be used for control employees and employees are not allowed any personal use. So the employee, if the employee goes to lunch every day in that car or drops off their kids on the way to work, um, this method can't be used. Equipment and allowances. Any equipment provided by the employer that is an ordinary business expense or reimbursements made under an accountable plan, there's that substantiation again, um, are excludable. But if you pay an amount to an employee's as an allowance to purchase or stipend for using the employee's equipment, this is simply recharacterized wages and must be included in income. Uniforms and clothing are excluded if they are specifically required as a condition of employment and are not adaptable as streetwear. So if a manufacturer gives their employees those lovely white uh, coverall paint suits, those are going to be excludable. They probably wouldn't want to wear those to a ball game. Um, but if you give your employees polo shirts or other logo wear, they should be included as income as they really are streetwear, even if you require that they be worn to work. So this is, this is one that employers don't really care for. 
Uh, we have several companies that we've worked with that provide polo shirts to their employees and uh, require that they wear them to the office. And since it's considered streetwear, if you're buying five or 10 shirts per year for these employees, that really is supposed to be a taxable benefit. So again, you can only exclude actual costs from wages. So allowances, which don't necessarily relate to cost, are always going to be included in the, in the income. Awards and prizes. <clears throat> Who doesn't love a prize? Um, remember that any award or prize that is given in cash is absolutely wages, must be included on the employee's W-2. If you're providing a non-cash award, those can also be wages, even if it's a random drawing. So uh, recognition awards, performance awards, so on. Um, there are three types of non-cash awards that may be excluded if they meet certain criteria, certain kinds of achievement, achievement awards, certain prizes or awards that are transferred to charities or de minimis awards and prizes. Um, so we, to throw in here, we, we get a lot of questions about raffles and drawings from some of our employers. Um, as an example, if they have a United Way campaign and they have prizes like gift cards and everybody wants to know if that's taxable, that's actually one of the things that we do here at AGH. We have, you know, get ticket drawing raffle tickets for, you know, different participation. Um, so you remember gift cards, these are like cash. So those would definitely under the regs be taxable if the raffle or drawing is limited to company employees. Now, if that raffle or drawing allows the general public to come in and participate, any employee awards would not be taxable. And it's all about that, um, as we said in the beginning, employee-employer relationship. So again, that's kind of where you have to, you know, do that risk analysis uh, to see, you know, how you feel about reporting or not reporting that stuff. So let's talk a little bit about professional licenses and dues. If you are directly paying or reimbursing employees for professional licenses or dues, these actually can be non-taxable as long as the employee is required to maintain that license and it's actually directly related to that employee's job. Again, um, these are business items that should the employee pay to themselves, actually used to be deductible business expenses on their individual tax return as an itemized deduction called, I think it was called unreimbursed business expenses. Um, you know, we don't necessarily have that anymore uh, because le legislation got rid of that back, I think, in 2018. So how does that work? Well, from an employer perspective, we can still use the old rules to determine what um, actually could have been excluded and apply that logic. So again, um, substantiation is always required. Professional organizations fall under these same rules. So social club dues and memberships are never excludable. So any country club membership, um, you know, for your executives, uh, those should always be included in taxable wages. So under educational reimbursements and educational programs, there's actually three different code sections that allow education reimbursements to be excluded from taxable wages. Um, education is a working condition fringe benefit. Secondly, we have a qualified educational assistance program or uh, qualified scholarships and tuitions. And the, that last one only applies to educational institutions. For a working condition fringe benefit, the education cannot be needed to meet the minimum requirement of the employee's jobs. Job, sorry. Um, it cannot be part of a program that will qualify the employee for a new trade or business, and it must either be required by the employer 
or by law for the employee to keep their present salary status or job or maintain or improve skills required for the job that they're presently doing. So, um, Mike, if I asked, is substantiation required? What do you think the answer to that is? Um, what is yes, Alex? <laughs> so, you can exclude a graduate computer course for a computer tech if, as that really kind of enhances their skills, but you can't exclude someone finishing their CPA if you hired them contingent upon completing the degree uh, because the position actually requires that. The Qualified Educational Assistance Program requires that the employer have a written plan which only offers education assistance and it doesn't discriminate, excuse me, does not discriminate, discriminate, I've never had trouble with that word, um, it does not discriminate against non-highly comped employees. Uh, the limit for this type of plan is still sitting at $5,250 per calendar year. Woo! <laughs> Next is uh, dependent care assistance. So an employer may provide household and dependent care services to allow an employee to work and can exclude this from wages if the employer reasonably believes that the employee can exclude the benefits from gross income. Also, you cannot use this exclusion for highly compensated employees or HCEs unless the benefit program doesn't favor those HCEs. So any excluded amounts should be included in box 10 of their form W-2. And then pre-tax dependent care can also be provided under a cafeteria plan. The limits follow the same rules regardless of the method, but uh, $5,000 per household can be withheld on a tax-free basis uh, if they're filing jointly. And then the amount cuts in half to $2,500 per year if they are married but file separately. Group term life insurance. Group term life is uh, when a group term life policy provides coverage in excess of $50,000 or where a group term plan is discriminatory, the value of the insurance benefit that must be included in employee's income is calculated using the IRS uniform premiums table. So you have until the last pay period of the year to record group term life. I believe most policy providers will calculate the annual income amounts for you, but you also need to consider uh, employees that leave mid-year. So in those cases, you will have uncollected FICA and Medicare taxes to reconcile on your 941 uh, if you don't take care of that, you know, upon termination. So we like to have a clean 941 and we will often recommend that you calculate the year-to-date amount so that you can withhold those associated taxes from the employee's final paycheck. Uh, additionally, if you provide employer-paid group term life insurance for a spouse or dependents, if the face value is greater than $2,000, the entire amount of the dependent coverage actually must be included in income as well. So I wanna point out here that uh, we are now seeing more and more employers who are recording that group term life on a per payroll basis um, in lieu of um, you know, just doing it in one lump at the end of the year. So this actually spreads that tax liability out through throughout the year for employees instead of putting it all in one check at the end of the year. It also takes care of those terminated employees. So, um, you know, not something that we all of a sudden have to think about in the middle of the year if an employee terminates. They should be up to date if we're doing it um, on a pay per paycheck period. They should actually be up to date on group term life if, the, if they terminate in the middle of the year. 
employees don't necessarily notice the taxes when they come out a little bit at a time, but um, I'm, I'm guessing most of you get a lot of questions uh, when there's a lump sum that's coming out at the end, and that can actually hurt a little bit too. Right before Christmas sometimes. Exactly, exactly. Uh, whew. So yeah, there are a significant number of items that can be provided to employees that we have to identify and value. And remember, substantiation for qualified payments in most of these scenarios to your employees can make these excludable. Okay, taxability and reporting requirements. As the gift says, keep your tears in your eyes where they belong. Uh, I like to say there's no crying in payroll, except at your end. <laughs> That's our attempt to wake everybody up. Yep. Uh, so now that you identified the fringe benefits, you'll need to record them in your payroll system. Uh, for each benefit, identify the taxability and verify that your payroll system is set up accordingly. Most of the fringe benefits are taxable wages for all tax agencies, but as we mentioned, group term life is excluded from federal and state unemployment for most states. And while personal use of an auto is considered taxable wages for federal income tax withholding, you don't have to actually withhold any tax. Uh, you just need to report it on the W-2, report the wages on the W-2. Um, I believe this is the only benefit where you have to, we have the option to not withhold income tax, but you do have to provide notification to the employee. So also, uh, you don't really know an employee's tax situation, so it may help some and it may, may be an underpayment for others. So, uh, Supplemental wage payments. Since fringe benefits really are supplemental wages, we thought it would be a good time to review those rules as well. Um, supplemental wage payments are anything outside of regular wages, bonuses, commissions, severance pay, uh, really even overtime, vacation or sick leave payouts. Uh, these are all considered supplemental wages. The rules state that there are a couple of different ways to tax these payments. Um, the first rule, if an employee has been compensated more than a million dollars in the year, you will always withhold at a 37% rate for all of the millionaires out there. Um, if the employee has made less than a million dollars, then you then determine if you're making the payment and including it with regular wages, meaning you aren't specifying the amount of each. So the pay stub doesn't distinguish between the types of payments that you're including on one. So you would withhold income taxes if the total were a single payment for a regular payroll period. If you are specifying the amounts by pay type or pay the supplemental wages as a completely separate payment, uh, you have a couple of options. So let's take a look at those. More math. Yeah. <laughs> this one this one gets a little in the weeds, like, like Cindy mentioned earlier. So um, let's look at an example comparing all three different methods here. The first one is the supplemental method. This one is pretty common and straightforward. Um, you withhold a flat 20, 22% for federal income tax, and each state will also have published supplemental tax rates for using this method. Uh, we usually do this if the payment is on a separate check from any other wages. So if you have a 12-15 check date and you have their regular wages, you would do an additional pay stub for a bonus supplemental wage, whatever the case is, uh, and we would tax that supplemental wage stub at a 22% rate. This is very common, like I said, we see this a lot. Um, the second option is concurrent with other wages. So if the supplemental wages are paid concurrently with regular wages, 
you add the supplemental wages to the concurrently paid regular wages. This will annualize the total amounts and withhold the taxes appropriately based on the tax tables. It just lumps it all together. And then lastly, the third method is when there are no concurrent wages. If there are no regular paid wages, you add the supplemental wages to either the regular wages paid or to be paid for the current payroll period or the regular wages paid for the preceding payroll period. And then we calculate the income tax withholding as if the total of the regular wages and supplemental wages is a single payment. We would then subtract the taxes withheld from the regular wages, withhold the remaining tax from the supplemental wages, and then if there were other payments of supplemental wages paid during the payroll period and made before the current payment of those supplemental wages, we would aggregate all the payments of supplemental wages paid during the payroll period with the regular payroll wages of the regular payroll period, calculate the tax on the total, and then subtract the tax already withheld from the regular wages and any other previous supplemental wage payments, and then withhold the remaining. So, as you can tell, this one is pretty complex. We don't use it very often, but it is out there. It is, it is an option for you. And if you do decide that you're gonna pay an employee portion of taxes on any of the fringe benefits that we've discussed so far, uh, remember that the payment of those taxes is also classified as wages. So you will need to gross up the earnings using the formula shown here. Um, desired net payments divided by 100% minus the total tax percentage. Um, you should also consider that not only, not only FICA and Medicare, but also federal income tax and state withholding tax, as well as any locals. So this is actually, um, we get this question a lot. You know, I, I wanna give these fringes, but I don't wanna make that, that employee responsible for the taxes. Um, other times I think we get the questions of, you know, I want to pay a bonus, but I want that bonus, the net check to be $2,000 as opposed to the gross amount. Um, so this same logic can, can apply there if, if we want to gross it up. Yep. Yeah, so be sure to look at year-to-date amounts for your employees. Um, anybody who's hit the FICA threshold will not need to be grossed up for that tax. Uh, you will also want to watch for employees who have exceeded the $200,000 additional Medicare wage threshold. For, for any of those, you will need to include the additional 0.9% in the gross-up calculation for them. And then keep in mind, like I said earlier, anybody who's exceeded $1 million in compensation will be required to use the federal withholding rate of 37%. And then I'll point out here again to... Uh, if you're grossing up for personal use of an auto, remember that you don't have to withhold federal income tax, although it is reported on the employee's W-2 as wages. Um, you may also need to consider 401k deferrals. Based on your plan's definition of compensation, as well as any local taxes, uh, some plan documents exclude non-cash fringes, so it's best to always check on that. And then, by the way, we're happy to share this Excel template with you if you're interested. Um, just put a comment in the question box saying that you'd like us to send it over um, the gross up calculator template and then we can do that after our presentation today. That way you don't have to reinvent the wheel because it is just pretty simple math. Yep. Okay. Now once we've um, 
recorded our fringes and benefits, we're also gonna to wanna to make sure that we report them correctly on the Form W-2. So this is gonna include verifying the wages reported on the W-2 as well as any special coding that might apply. More math. <laughs> so we actually recommend that at least no less frequently or at least on an annual basis um, that you prepare a reconciliation of your wages, deductions, and taxable wages. And I have people ask me all the time, what does that mean? So we're going to show you. So one easy way to do this is by creating a spreadsheet. It's going to list out all of your earning buckets or codes and the taxability based upon those different codes. So this slide here actually represents something that we do here in our service bureau um, for every one of our clients. And we actually do this on a quarterly basis when we're preparing the quarter end compliance returns as well as year end. Each of these earnings codes has designations for each tax buckets and those columns to the left of the highlighted year end amounts, all the ones that say one and zero, one and zero. Um, earnings codes that, that we want to include in taxable wages actually have a one in those columns while those that are excluded have a zero. So the columns to the right then is basically just formula driven uh, depending on you know what's triggered, what's flagged in that taxability stuff on the left. So um, in this example, you'll see that we have fringe insurance. So that's about the fourth fourth one fourth line down from the top. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's included full in taxable wages for all of the buckets. So all of those columns are triggered with a one. Um, however, reimbursed expenses that are later down. Um, in the lower half of this page, they're not includable as wages. Uh, so uh, no, we're assuming that there's an accountable plan out there. So they reflect zeros in all those columns. And you can see that as, as the math goes across to the right, um, it says that they're not, in, um, they're not included in those tax buckets. So then we're gonna take that and reconcile it. The exact same logic applies as we take a look at our deductions. So this looks very similar. Um, Left-hand side, we've listed all of our deductions down. Uh, the next section there is our little flag and it's a zero or actually in this case, a negative one um, as these contributions are actually gonna reduce our taxable wages. Um, so here's another little trick that we like to use uh, here at AGH. When we set up our payroll items, like our deductions here, uh, we like to use a standard naming scheme. So items that are deducted on a pre-tax basis, we actually put a 125 for the Section 125 cafeteria plan um, as the last three digits of their naming code. We also list employer deductions with an ER at the end uh, because it just makes it a little bit easier visually when we run down that to be able to um, tell if, if things are right or not. So if you go down this list and you look, anything that's got a 125 at the back end of it is... Um, actually has a negative one over there because those are part of the cafeteria plan. Um, so when, um, you know, we have a preparer that prepares this and then we have somebody review it, it makes it a heck of a lot easier to review. Yeah. Now, most employers can usually verify that their federal income tax wages plus 401k deductions are going to be equal to FICA and Medicare wages, um, reconciling those again. So FICA wages should equal wages taxable for federal unemployment um, for most cases, unless you have group term life, and then that's excluded from federal unemployment taxable wages. So keep in mind though, that there are certain states that don't follow the federal rules for certain deductions. So there may be circumstances where this logic doesn't necessarily hold true. 
Um, as an example, Iowa and Texas both include pre-tax deductions when calculating the state unemployment uh, taxable wages. Um, again, I'm going to go back to this slide. If, if this is something that you're interested in having our template for so that you don't have to reinvent that wheel on both the earnings and the deduction sides, um, you can put something in the comment box and we'll certainly we'll, we'll get that template out to you as well. Now, once you've prepared your wage and tax reconciliation, the next step is going to be comparing these totals on the reconciliations to your W-2s. Um, many payroll software packages are going to have what's called a W-2 audit report, and that's going to list all these totals out there for you. Remember that your 941s from the four quarters of the year should match the totals on your W-3 for federal wages and taxes, as well as FICA and Medicare. So the sum of the four quarters, sum of the parts should equal the whole. Um, a lot of times we, we run into things where something was amended or a payroll adjustment was posted back into a previous quarter and an amendment wasn't made. Um, doing this reconciliation is where you're going to find that. Um, another piece of information that you need uh, is to identify uh, any special codes that are needed to populate in box 12 of the employee's W-2. A couple of the more commonly used fringe benefit codes uh, are going to be code C, the taxable cost of group term life that's exceeding $50,000, codes D and AA, which are your 401k and Roth contributions to retirement plans. Um, as a reminder, there's also codes for third-party sick pay, deferred compensation plans, as well as others, and this is a comprehensive list. Um, and I think this reference guide is actually in the instructions for the W-2s. Um, so it's not anything we made. We just um, kind of copied and pasted it there. Uh, there's also a pension checkbox on the W-2, which uh, seems to be confusing to some people. Uh, this box should be checked if the employee is a participant in a defined benefit plan. That's going to be like a, a pension. And it also needs to be checked if they are deferring in a retirement plan or if the employer has made a contribution on the employee's behalf, even if that employee isn't making their own deferral. Um, so that would be something like a profit-sharing contribution. Other items that we need to think about and possibly enter prior to the end of the year include deferred compensation. So if you have employees with non-qualified deferred comp plans under Section 409A, you need to determine if there was a change to any vesting of the benefit as well as review any contributions to, uh, to the plan to determine the taxability. Make sure that you record any third-party sick pay that's applicable. Um, know that there's different arrangements out there with third-party providers, so make sure that you understand the responsibilities of your specific arrangement. There's sometimes things that they do if they're, you know, it depends on if they're an agent or not as your agent, so uh, you've got to make sure that you understand who is doing what. Uh, keep in mind that if payments are made after an employee's death or the payments are attributable to employee contributions that are made with after-tax dollars. The payments are, amounts are not subject to income tax withholding. All right, so we're coming near the end here. So let's summarize everything that we've covered today. Um, you know, it's important to identify and value all the fringe benefits that are provided. It's important to go talk to your human resources area, your accounts payable, things that you paid through payroll, anywhere else that those things might be um, lurking or sleeping under a rock. Then we need to properly record those fringe benefits in the payroll system and finally properly report 
those fringe benefits on year-end uh, compliance forms like your uh, W-2s, et cetera.